At this point, you should be on the frame with a film strip title that says Oral Hygiene. Welcome to Oral Hygiene. It's the podcast where we talk about educational films, experimental caught films, and interesting documentaries. This is Matt here. We're rocking and rolling today. We have a uh, bass player, a uh, bass playist, bass player, <laughs> who's uh, played with a lot of Hall of Famers. has a has a certificate for for his own blues Hall of Fame and bass playing. And recently wrote the book number Memoirs of a Working Class Rock Star. So hello, Ivan Bodley. Nice to see you, man. Thanks for having me along. I just tripped over eight of those words. I'll blame the morning. Actually, um, we just had the the weather, like the season switch just went <laughs> yesterday. So <laughs> everyone got, you know, back aches and uh I, I teach all my students were falling asleep on me. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of weird. The season, right, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, especially in Japan, when it's like June or September, it's like June 1st, September 1st, like weather changes. I used to live in New Orleans, Louisiana. I went to school down there, and there, there are two seasons in New Orleans. There's summer and February. And yeah. That's it. That's <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. No, my hometown, one, month of the, yeah. one month of the year is really cold there, and the rest of the time it is blazing hot, you know. That's when they're partying, though, isn't it? February? That's That's... Mardi Gras time, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, it can be. Yeah, sometimes some, if it's Mardi Gras early, it depends. It's based on the lunar calendar or whatever. So if it's early that year, it's, it's like the day before Ash Wednesday, whenever that is. So, yeah, it can be it can be really cold. Mardi Gras can be really cold sometimes or other times it can be just blazing, just depending, you know. Yeah, my, my hometown's Atlanta, so we, we don't particularly have seasons there either. But <laughs> See, I grew up a... just north of you. I grew up in Chattanooga. I'm right up right up on Lookout Mountain, right north of you. Yeah, I saw that in your in your book, and I, I guess the I, I, Chattanooga is where, where I take the ladies. <laughs> yeah, right. I have someone visiting, right? You go up to the <laughs> aquarium, and you know, I, I like Rock City and stuff like that. Just I don't know, you get away from the city, and uh, well, Atlanta sized city, and uh, <laughs> I remember Chattanooga has become Chattanooga has become a really hip town. It's like on the list of like top ten most desirable places to live in North America right now. Uh, but when I grew up there, it was like one of the top 10 most polluted cities in North America. So <laughs> I don't recognize all the cool stuff that you would take your friends to go see, you know, Rock City was there, but the aquarium wasn't the tow truck museum was certainly not there. You know, any of those really cool things that everybody goes there now is like, it, it's almost don't, almost unrecognizable, but I'm happy for everybody in the place that lives there. That's cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to bopping back home someday and having a total, you know, like rip van winkle experience because it's been so long <laughs> i know oh, atlanta's changed a lot too i'm sure you know yeah um anyway the, the the main the focus of today is going to be the uh classic film this is spinal tap i i yes. could on this podcast throw, easily throw that into the caught category but um in our initial mailing you're like no, i'm going to explain why it's a documentary so instead of a summary which doesn't really lend itself to the film that you know band goes on tour um maybe you can give your your quick or, or long explanation on why this is a documentary well i saw this absolutely true to life 100 percent true documentary when it came out in 1984 in the theater and i was in the music business at the time i was in college radio at the time i was also just starting to be a professional musician semi-professional at the time i really didn't become a full-time professional until i'd say early 90s to be fair but everything in this documentary rang immediately true to me like i'd sort of seen some version of everything that they've that they were experiencing on film and i think and this is going on what we're 35 37 years later now like i probably have quoted that film you know either out loud or in my mind every single day since then because it absolutely rings a hundred percent true for life as a touring musician. You know, you run into these situations all the time. So yeah, to me, it's absolutely a true to life <laughs> documentary. There's no, you know, no pretense about it. I think it's real life. It's my life. It's my life. I live it. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, growing up in the 90s and I, I was playing in bands in Atlanta in the 90s. And of course, you'd hear a lot of quotes and things from the movie. The thing right. you couldn't find at that time was uh, the movie. It was like in the 90s, right. it was really difficult to track down. So, um, you know, once I did get to see it, it was, you know, kind of a special thing and might have been, even been DVD before I actually got to sit yeah. down and watch the thing. There was some kind of contract dispute that the actors and the creators went through with uh, the, the company that made it. So I think there was a period of time when it was unavailable and that might have been during that time. Like you just couldn't find it. It certainly wasn't screening around. So once they finally got that settled and now, you know, now I have the, um, the deluxe edition, uh, uh, DVD with, 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 there's like another 90 minutes worth of bonus footage on it that they cut out of the original. So my problem now is like, I can't remember if I'm quoting the actual film itself or the bonus footage, because I've seen them all so many times that I know, I I know the whole thing. Um, for this viewing, I actually intentionally didn't watch the bonus footage, but right. uh, it is nice. Like, oh, there's like a sequel right on the disc. There's all these extra. Yeah, right. There's an extra an extra movie. And there are all these storylines that they ended up sort of truncating or cutting out that are just fascinating to watch. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but on the the DVD deluxe edition, there's also the the commentary track. So if you watch that the and turn on the commentary track, the, the three principals do the entire commentary in character. They're, they're basically heckling their own movie. So it's like a, a complete <laughs> third additional version of the movie with them, you know, narr- re-narrating the whole thing. You know, it's very, very amusing to me. I must yeah, say. I took that trip too, but it's probably been 20 years. Yeah, actually now you're I'm like, oh, it does have that commentary. Now, now I'm going to go have to go and watch it again <laughs> right 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 now i will say the one thing that did not hit for me in this movie even hearing as a quote was um i never got the amps going to 11 i i used, <laughs> I used to play with a pv classic 50 and yeah and all the numbers went to 12 so i was like well, mine yeah goes 12 <laughs> yeah yeah mine goes well, one louder in spinal tap <laughs> that's what i'm saying it's one louder isn't it yeah yeah now listen you know that's that's the way it used to be because that, that was an old sort of like uh radio and TV, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Logarithmic thing. Like you would, you know, plus 12 DB is what they were saying, you know? So 10 is just sort of a scale of one to 10 and that's what they were making one louder, but yeah, there are absolutely, uh, faders and knobs that, that very standard in the industry that went up to 12. So your PV amp was no exception. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, missed that one, but it's really big and heavy and it's not, it wasn't going to come to Japan with me, so I'm yeah, I'm a yeah. I got I got one of those lunchbox a, a lot lunchbox amps now. <laughs> oh, those are great! Those are great. And I, I I started life with the PV TNT 100 bass amp. That was my first bass amp. Uh, yeah, they were solid and heavy as everything. So now the Class D amplifiers have, they've changed the weight restrictions so much that you know I I have a 300 watt amp that weighs 29 pounds, and that's what I carry around on the subway with me in New York City. Uh, no more, uh, uh, no more PVs, no more uh, SVTs. Um, but when we go out and do the big rock tours, you want to, you still want to look like Spinal Tap up there. So you got to have a big stack of Marshalls or something behind you <laughs> to make it look like you're bringing the volume. You know, put your lunchbox on top of a giant cabinet. That could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one thing I wonder in this film is how much of it could actually happen on the road today, right? You know, you got the 70s as notorious rock and roll time. Uh, for example, you could not pull off the, the cucumber thing anymore pretty easily, I'm guessing, through the airport with a tinfoil cucumber in your pants. Well, <laughs> the reason why we couldn't pull it off is because we've learned from Derek's mistake. You know, it's, a, it's an honest mistake. You know, you have a piece of, uh, you want to you uh, enhance your, your endowment appearance, you know, and you, you have a piece of a vegetable you want to use. So you want to wrap it in something to keep it nice and fresh unfortunately with the airport metal detectors being what they are and because of the great documentary this is spinal tap we've learned no we can't do this so <laughs> i did have a weird experience three or four years ago we my we had a company trip to um, one of the southern islands in okinawa yeah small island. we're coming back and it was weird there was um there was just like no security i mean there was mm. like a thing something to pass through but i'm walking yeah. through I'm, like drinking a, a a drink <laughs> yeah still partying under the plane you know it's just like 
weird just because uh, america you know it's like bend over please these days yeah so. <laughs> well, but even here like when you have a very very small regional airport and you're flying out on a puddle jumper or a crop duster you know the the security is not near what it is here at jfk and laguardia you know you can really it, it has that same feeling you're describing you kind of just walk on the plane and with whatever which is a little scary a little scary wish it was a little tighter even at the regional airports you know yeah, Atlanta's Hartsfield is, of course, I think still or sometimes considered the busiest in the, the world. So they always have it, uh, everything locked Agreed. down. <laughs> I've been through every terminal of Hartsfield. I know it very well. <laughs> oh, while we're on airports on a completely different discussion, but that's fine. Um, Got to bring up Denver. That's the weird one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just there a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact. Yep. Yeah, I, I think they've changed some of the totally bizarro murals and things they used to have. But um, <laughs> I remember rocking through in about 2003, I think, when they had all of that crazy stuff there. Yeah. And they have the, uh, the, the giant bull statue that killed its creator. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Have you heard about yeah, that one? And, yeah, uh, yeah, heard that, all that. And then uh, they have the, like the cloud projections on the roof of the, of the inside of the terminal. Like you look up and you see, think you're looking at sky, but then you watch it for a second like, that's a projection like it's it's <laughs> it's all kind of done with the uh, smoke and mirrors pretty interesting place yeah it was a um i was there on a layover but it was maybe three hours and i was like oh i i actually went out of security and went back in just because i was like this place is so weird i have to check it out a little more <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah. i did that and and then did fly into one of those weirder regional airports i think i was going to jackson hole uh on the off season because I've never had money but <laughs> right but you learned you learned from watching Spinal Tap the documentary not to try to smuggle your cucumber wrapped in tinfoil can't do it right 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 you just have your your your, your can of a uh, chew high just bowed in the open in the, the Mio Kojima airport I, th right. I think I finished it and tossed and then went through security but uh mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> but you just can't I don't remember being able to stroll up to security like that in America anytime recently right but as right. I told you it's been a while since I've even been in America um something you mentioned in your book and i'd love to hear your own version of this is the uh infamous getting lost backstage the only time oh. i came close to that would have been um classical concerts i guess i also played cello so there have sure. been a few times where i'm in and especially in japan because um it's always like a different theater so i've right well that's exactly the lost. problem and, and and believe me every time and i mean every time we're landing in cleveland we're all like going hello cleveland hello of course we can't stop ourselves it's like it's like Tourette's we have Cleveland Tourette's um it happens so every time you play a theater as you're just saying it's a brand new building the first time you've been in the building uh usually you know unless you you're doing a repeat visit and backstage they're just labyrinthian there's like these passageways that go this way and they go that way and they go upstairs and you know they might have six floors of dressing rooms going up these little uh spiral staircases in some of the old rko movie theater type houses and it's no joke like you you, you can be sort of wandering down hallways and you're you can you, you're walking past the production office and the catering and you're like where's the stage like we actually have to perform now and you know and the scene in the movie again rings totally true because they're trying to get themselves all hyped up that's where they're going like, hello cleveland hello cleveland they're getting themselves pumped and they cannot find the stage door <laughs> to go start their show and i just i felt that so deeply because you're like you know if it's a good house that has like experience sort of uh production managers they have literal tape on the floor with arrows like this way catering this way stage that way like they have arrows pointing because it, we all get lost all the time I was trying to find where we're going you know I do remember a few times my Japanese is terrible and sometimes in those breaks with with orchestras I don't really want to get into a broken conversation so I've been known to climb the rafters and read a book for a while <laughs> right right sure and then good luck finding your way back, right? You're like, I think I went this way and it seemed like the stage was over there and yeah. Oh, no, I'm looking above everything from there. It's great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there I'm just like, am I, am I being too dangerous here by climbing the rafters? So. Right. <laughs> and, and for like, for myself, I'm, I'm pretty good with, I have a good sense of direction. Like I can sort of get oriented and re read a map. I know which way is north, south, east, west, usually, you know, but a lot of stages, the, the back of the stage is a, concave 
shape. So like you're, you're running on a sort of a semicircle kind of shape, like you're not running in a linear direction. So you don't know if you're heading sort of northeast, which is virtuing towards, you know, southeast. And, you know, it's very easy to kind of get disoriented and figure out where on the arc you are. Are you at stage right, stage left, you know, backstage? Uh, the struggle is real, my friends. <laughs> that's, why, <laughs> that's why I say it's a documentary. I swear to God it is. I know. I think it's fun to get a little, a little lost from time to time, <laughs> but if, well, when you when you need to be there in five minutes, yes, it's probably... that's what I'm saying. It's all great to explore, <laughs> but if you if you're on now, if you can hear the overture playing and you need to make your entrance, you're like, uh oh, <laughs> where am I going? Um, now you you've played with tons of people, uh, taking on the bass chair and and Spinal Tap. I, I guess the structure of the band is uh the three members and, and the 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 hired folks. <laughs> Right. Well, they've had a, a, a series of unfortunate events with many of their drummers. They've been trying to keep drummers, but uh, they keep uh, exploding or, or choking on their own vomit or, well, actually, we don't know whose vomit he choked on. Someone else's, yes. Could have been someone else's vomit. Um, so, yeah, th th I guess the three surviving principles became the, sort of the core of the band because, you know, it was hard to know uh, two of their founding drummers are no longer with us. And actually, by the end of the movie, I believe there's a third drummer who goes. <laughs> right, they had a spontaneous yeah. combustion at the end. Yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. I, I've never, I've never had an actual spontaneous combustion on stage. To be fair, but I did have a drummer once fall off the back of the stage and dislocate his shoulder immediately after the show. So, like, yeah, we've had some injuries right on the field, you know, from the drums chair. So I, I, I can identify with that as well. I, I don't know why we were able to get him on, but we were able to talk to Tommy Chong about Up and Smoke, and he was very clear that when the you know the drummer on Downer is coming up and falling all over the drum kit was you know from his personal experience in bands. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tommy was a you know he toured with uh, um, uh, Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. You know, he, Tommy was on Motown Records. He was a Motown recording artist before he became a comedy hero. So. He was legitimately on the Chitlin circuit for for many years, so yeah, he knows. He's he's been there. He's seen it. Um, as far as far as this one, yeah, it's like what being a drummer. My problem with drummers is the first guy I ever played with was amazing, so right. everyone else kind of sucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's, I played a band with spoiled. Years, and who's who's very well listening to this, and now I'm like, okay, he was a really nice metronomic drummer. You know, he just uh, didn't have the jazz all the time, right? So right, 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 right. <laughs> You know, there's a, a good a good bar band drummer is, is sometimes uh, good to have. That, that's much better than just an asshole behind you. So, <laughs> well, I had a similar experience coming out of New Orleans. You know, I went to school in New Orleans, went to college, and you know, the 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 rhythm tradition in New Orleans is tremendous. Like the parade drumming, the second line beat. You know, just there's just sort of your average quote unquote bar band drummer in New Orleans is probably amazing. So when I left New Orleans and got out into the rest of the world, you know, I just assumed everybody had a second line beat because everybody in New Orleans has one. They know how to do it, you know, and, and, and you know, even your, your most average drummer is going to be pretty great was my experience. And when you got into the world, you realize, no, no, not, <laughs> not quite that way. You know, you got a little, a little rude awakening because you get no, spoiled. The, yeah. The first time I played in a band in university, which was relatively short lived, but we show up and. The, the other two guitar players aren't bad. I mean, at least, you know, like they can perform a song, you know, like they mm -hmm. can play something interesting. Maybe their technical chops are variable, but they bring in a, the drummer who is just like, like, you know, one of those wind up monkeys or something. That's like all he does. I'm like, seriously, can I, can I play the drums instead? Because I can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I need to tell you two spinal tap adjacent stories that I have in my career. So uh, do you remember the publicist, Bobby Fleckman from Polymer Records, played by Fran Drescher? Yes, right? yes, one of the many cameos here. <laughs> yes, yes. So that character, uh, it has been purported, was based on a very famous publicist in uh, New York City named Susan Blonde, who was a publicist for Epic Records. She was Michael Jackson's publicist, among other things. Um, and she was the one who hired me when I first started working at Epic Records, my first job out of college. And that was exactly the way she spoke. It was very Bobby Flegman and there was Fran Drescher, the Queen's sort of accent. It was, it was kind of uncanny to sort of meet 
Bobby Fleckman in the fr- in the flesh, you know, the inspiration for her. Um, and, and work for her. I actually worked for her for about a year and a half. Uh, and then uh, my next Spinal Tap adjacent story was uh, we were playing in Austin, Texas, the South by Southwest Festival. I was playing with Sam Moore, the original singer from Sam and Dave, the original soul man. And backstage that night was a, a gentleman uh, who goes by the name of Harry Shearer. I know him better as Derek Smalls, the bass player from Spinal Tap, of course. So, uh, you know, what do you say to Harry Shearer when he first met him? I just said, I'm a huge Derek Smalls fan. I said, in fact, I have your action figure. He said, thank you for not calling it a doll because it's not a doll. It's an action figure. I'm like, absolutely right. 100%. I got it immediately, you know, so he's cracking wise the second I met because I do have the set of three. Uh, Spinal Tap action figures are on my my dresser, and I, I I see them every morning when I wake up. All right, yeah, I think I think the ones of those I went for, and the, uh, this is way back in the day, was the uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie from Strange Brew, where you could sure. construct their entire platform, and it came with yeah. little beer bottles, and everything was great. Hundred <laughs> percent. I still have I still have the the Spinal. They're still in the original packaging too. Like they come with uh, I think I think Derek has a cucumber in his. There's like a guitar pick shape stand that they stand on. There's a couple of album covers like Shark Sandwich and uh, 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 Venus. Uh, what is it? Venus de Milo. Uh, it, yeah, there's like they come with accessories as well as you know they're playing their guitars in costume and they're very buff. They're all the three of them are like super GI Joe bodies, you know that <laughs> don't Man-o-war. entirely resemble the act the actors at all, you know. But it's very funny. <laughs> You're making me think of a Man of War cover there. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Except they don't really look like that, I don't think. They took a of little course. artistic license, you know. <laughs> I, I assume it's basically, I think most people know this, but just in case, got to also shout out Harry Shearer for doing half the voices on The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, yes. No, he's amazing. He's, you know, one of the great auteurs of our time. You know, he's got a political podcast, which he does, which is tremendous and all the Simpsons stuff and Spinal Tap and, and, and he's great. Really great. I'm a fan. Yeah. And this whole run of the, uh, I guess, Christopher Guest, well, he directed the other, so it tends to get thrown right. on his, but uh, Rob Reiner doing this one, but uh, with uh, Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show and, and A Mighty Wind, of course, is a, is a good one coming from a very different direction. Right. H- have you seen A Mighty Wind by chance? I- I've seen them all. Yeah, yeah. They're very okay. much of a piece, even though Chris, as you say, directed the, the latter three. But, uh, they, you know, because they, they worked on them as an ensemble, like Spinal Tap was a, a sketch they did for a television show before it got fleshed out into the movie. So the three of them and Rob had been working on it since way, way back in the 70s, actually. Um, and the fact that they sort of continued with the same cast into, into those other uh, I'll call them documentaries. I have no problem with it. You know, uh, <laughs> it, it's great. I think I think they're all they're all of a piece, and they're certainly of a different of a, a specific tone. They have a very specific point of view, you know, in the way that he he presents his characters. Uh, I think great. I think it's just all great. And I I do think about I think it's about fifteen years ago where um, they would come out when they were actually doing concerts, and they would come out and perform as the folk group in a mighty wind and people are like the folks brewing, like the folks when they think thank you and people are brewing, like we're spinal tap who are these yeah. guys it's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got booed <laughs> off of their own gonna... stage multiple times as the folksman the opening for themselves <laughs> and they were <laughs> you know fantastic. completely committed to the characters like they weren't going to break character not no we're the folksmen and we're going to do our stuff i i was playing at a, a club in in greenwich village uh i used to play this one club like uh, four nights a week for like five and a half years, five and a half hours a night. And between set breaks, we'd be out front, you know, just sort of like taking in some fresh air and not breathing the cigarette smoke. And this particular bar was flanked on either side of like piano bars. So their patients would be similarly on the curb. There was like the big scene, as much of a scene on the sidewalk as there was in any of the bars. And one night I went out on a set break and I ran smack into Parker Posey. And I was like, I said, um, Miss Parker, I don't mean to be, be rude, but I, I really enjoy your work. And I just seen a mighty win had just come out. And, and I, she was telling me that they had really learned how to play their instruments for that. Like she had learned how to play mandolin for that movie and it actually sort of kept it up. So they were really like creating the music and Spinal Tap as well. They're playing all their own instruments themselves. There's no, there are no ringers in there other than, you know, the drummer and the keyboard player, but it's all them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and let's not forget that uh, despite the fact that 
the band is supposed to be, you know, a bunch of buffoons. You know, the music's generally pretty good. It's catchy. I mean, I can yeah. remember this before most, say, 38 special songs or something. <laughs> uh, well, I think they, I you know, get... they set out to write in the style of, you know, because as they were setting up the history of the band, the Thamesmen and all that stuff, you know, there was like, they're going to write a song in the style of the Turtles and then another song in the style of whatever, you know. Uh, so I think uh, as an archaeological exercise, they set themselves these tasks, and I think they really rose to it, you know. Give me some money. It's like great tunes. Yeah, that's the one that probably gets stuck in my, my head the most. Um, right. <laughs> maybe some, some, some big bottom. I was working environmental education, um, and there, it was in Canada, but we were all Americans except for one, one girl, but she was obsessed with that song for some reason, which was hysterical. <laughs> Have you seen the version of Big Bottom live at, not Live Aid, Live Live Eight, whatever it was? I think it was that that was the next big one they did. Spinal Tap appeared at Live Eight, you know, in Wembley Arena in front of you know, however many hundred thousand people or something, and they had everybody who was a bass player in all of the other bands all come up on stage to play Big Bottom with them. So they had twenty bass players playing it. And uh, Derek St. Hubbins is introducing them one at a time. And on bass from the Beastie Boys, Adam York. And on bass from the from the Thompson, <laughs> you know, he just, the whole thing. And on bass, hysterical. It's on YouTube somewhere. I, I recommend you go find it because they just they took that song and amplified it even for what it was, you know, which is uh, in all of its foolishness and and large bottomness. <laughs> um, I read a book. About a few months ago, is um what was it called? Uh, no encores. Uh, the author's name is something Fortune. Anyway, he he went out and asked a bunch of people about. He said he was going to do a book and ask people about their best gig and their worst gig, and he quickly right. found that nobody could remember their best gigs. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've been asking uh, the musicians that show up for their worst gigs. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes uh, once or twice it got dark. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I thought we were, I, I'm looking for an amusing story here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe take that with an amusing grain of salt. Yeah, it's, I think the, the weird gigs or the, or the odd gigs are the ones that kind of stick with you. Like when everything goes right, you know, it's supposed to go right. You've been practicing your whole life to have everything go right and everybody does their job and everything's great, you know, no problem. But the, the ones where things go, uh sideways those are the ones that are always kind of make for the interesting road story uh especially if you're writing a book or a memoir <laughs> you're right yeah, yeah. you write about the weird ones those are the ones people want to read about uh, can you can you give us a, a choice weird one yeah i mean the book's full of them but uh i think the weirdest uh not it wasn't the worst but it was definitely the weirdest we did a wedding gig for um uh, it was in, a, in a, a converted Gothic synagogue on the Lower East Side of New York. So this you know, the building just looks sort of like, you know, Gothic and scary. It's all lit up inside. They have all the special specialty lighting in it. So all these stark shadows and Gothic architecture, uh, a giant um, florist sort of installation. Like there was a, the, the sweetheart table was on an island in a moat that had a tree over it that they'd installed. Like it had to be like a hundred thousand dollar wedding caterers um a band photographer everything all the trappings you could possibly imagine there's like a high dollar wedding and there were no guests there were zero guests it was just the couple so we were with an acoustic jazz trio playing in the corner like and these people are like 20 feet away from us and we're not making eye contact we're not talking to them we're just kind of playing acoustic music background you know, and the caterers would come in and serve them and then immediately leave the room. So it was just this couple. And it was the oddest, most uncomfortable thing for four hours. Uh, we in the band, we, we dubbed this the Hannibal Lecter wedding because we would not have been shocked to read in the New York Times the next day that the groom had like eaten the bride, you know, consumed her after. <laughs> it was just so odd. It was so really uncomfortably odd. I guess that's it. yeah, some something weird happening with uh, the the moneyed folks <laughs> or something like that. Eyes wide shut in a different uh, light. Yeah, <laughs> but you know when people like to spend money, they really like to show it off. They like their friends to see it, and there were no friends. There was nobody there. <laughs> there so was they no saved the money. They didn't yeah, have to right. <laughs> save some money that way. So. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah, clearly money was no object because they had it because they spent it. But yeah, it was it was uncomfortable. Let's put it that way. Uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, I guess you were the captive audience playing the music is the, uh, mm -hmm. the kind of trippiest thing. Yes, <laughs> yes. And at one point we were uh, we were playing an acoustic version of Fly Me to the Moon and Let Me Swing Among the Stars. And the groom like got up to use the restroom. So it was just the bride in the room. And she turned to us in the middle of the song and addressed us directly. She's like, that's our favorite anime song. And we're like, first off, it's Frank Sinatra. Second off, you're talking to us? Do we, do we make eye contact? Do we respond? Like, what do we do? This is the first time you've acknowledged us all night as, as human beings in the same room. <laughs> You're know, like, oh, yeah, oh, great. Yeah, great. Nice. Congratulations. Just out of curiosity, <laughs> could, could, you, could you gauge their ages? Yeah, I mean they were they were the age of wedding people. Like the twenty seven is like the median age of every sort of like big production wedding, because that's the first. That's everybody's first wedding is when they're twenty seven. If they're getting remarried when they're thirty five, they know like they're going to tone it down a little bit, you know, because we could we've done this once before. We don't want to have to give up back all the wedding presents. So like, they were sort of the typical, you know. 20 yeah. okay late 20s yeah reading the book of course you mentioned hannibal lecter which throws uh, an older <laughs> anthony hopkins in your brain and and then or, yes. or you know like charles foster kane or something <laughs> right no i think that just makes us old because we know what that reference means like you know we're old enough to remember silence of the lambs yeah. <laughs> hey i'm one of the five people that actually liked the 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 hannibal movie <laughs> right right okay it was just so weird you know science of the lambs it's too real right Hannibal gets right. weird. <laughs> it could also be a documentary, unfortunately, right? Yeah. Um, one thing, another thing that this movie wonderfully predicts is the, um, you know, the Black Album, that cover having yes. getting used by several other people later. Uh, Prince 100%. had his, you know, Metallica. Well, if you called Metallica is a certain angle, you, you see a little bit of stuff on it, but... Uh... <laughs> I, and this, that's not by accident. I, I know for 100% that they've all seen that movie and they've all said, you know what? The Black Album. Like they all, they, they, I'm it. sure it's more than, a, than a, a small homage to Spinal Tap. Because we're all influenced. I'm telling you, everybody who's a touring musician is hugely influenced by that movie. It's like, because it just, it rings so tremendously true uh, to everything we've seen and experienced. Um, now, this is the the supposed to be the band on their sort of down run this is when they're putting out the i imagine the smell of the glove album has you know lots of like programmed uh lindrum and you know too much keyboard and stuff <laughs> so it's a, it's a uh, band on well, their they're supposed to be on their last legs i guess <laughs> right but i'm thinking back to the soundtrack because they did actually release the full soundtrack and they never really got to the electronic age like the the movie and this is interesting too this is sort of a piece of kind of musical history the the lindrum kind of came in right around 82 83 started to get prominent with like prince and some artists like that um and a, a lot of rock artists you're absolutely right did adopt that to much to their detriment because it kind of took a lot of the the live drums out of the thing but uh thinking back on the soundtrack they did they never got there like spinal tap was still kind of stuck in the in their history so there's still live drums on everything even though they're well into their demise by the end of uh of the end of the tour when the band completely implodes you know <laughs> I, I guess what i was sort of uh getting at with that is i i sort of assume they were playing like their 70s hits on stage <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh that... well they're, they're running through the whole catalog because they go through the 60s hits and the thamesman and the new thamesman and then the... <laughs> Uh, Although I, I so, like a good early 80s Iron Maiden album, so whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, who doesn't? <laughs> Tremendous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, they're going through and having all these cancellations and things as they're traveling, right. especially uh, once, once the lady friend joins, joins them. But uh, ha have you been on a tour that is that frustrating? A hundred percent. All of them. They're all that frustrating. <laughs> like it happens all the time, you know, and I can't tell you how many times we're sort of like we've got a run to do in, in, you know, across Europe and there are seven gigs booked in, in 10 days and we get over there and like, oh, well, one of the gigs fell out. So it's just six gigs now. And we're like halfway through the tour and like, oh yeah, well, another one of the gigs fell out and you don't get paid for those dates. So you've sort of allowed like a certain amount of money that you know you're going to make on the run. And then the dates just kind of cancel and they say things like, yeah, well, Boston isn't a big college town. You know, that's, <laughs> you start hearing that kind of horse crap and you're like, okay, yeah. So yeah, it happens all the time. 
And yeah, you're talking about family members and or wives and partners becoming quote unquote band managers happens all the time. And it's enormously frustrating because somebody's coming in with no music industry experience, no tour experience, and sort of taking over and thinking, well, I know better. I'm like, yeah, I happen to know for a fact you don't because I'm watching you screw this up. And you, you know, but that's the person who's signing your paychecks. You just kind of go like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Thank you, has sir. Ever, May I have another. Has it ever gone well? Someone really like steps up to the plate in that role? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, like, you know, if, if they keep doing it for a long time, they learn the ropes, you know, some become quite good at it. And if it's somebody who's like their spouse or their partner, you know, they genuinely do have their artist interests primarily at, in mind. So yeah, they're, they're trying to be the biggest advocate for their for their artist. And I do respect that. But there, there's a, a pretty steep learning curve. And then when you run into people that just like come in and start stomping over the place like they know something and they clearly don't, it's very frustrating because you feel like I have more experience than you and I have to do whatever you tell me because that's the way it's, you know. So yeah, when she, when uh, David's wife came onto the bus in Spinal Tap, I'm like, yep, seen that, been there, do it all the time. Yeah, Nigel just has the most fantastic looks of disdain and in, in her direction of course yeah. fantastic acting there <laughs> yeah yeah no and we, and we all feel it deeply like it's you know because that's how you look at that person when they come into the room you're like oh no <laughs> what now <laughs> um, what have you thought of for us now you want us to wear these shirts that's happened to us by the way when she came in with the shirts with the designs that she wanted them to wear that has <laughs> happened to us like here's the new band uniform and they pull out like a, a set of 10 matching t-shirts and you're like no 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 we're not going on stage wearing that that's not going to happen you know like you have to have a revolt it's not even a joke that's happened to us um and then what was the other one? Oh, the astrological uh tour schedules mm, i thought that was kind mm -hmm. of fun <laughs> I wouldn't mind. Yeah, I, I don't I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in astrology, but I'd love to get an astrological tour schedule, hopefully from someone <laughs> who knew what they were doing. But <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and we've seen that, too. Like, you know, people get into whatever they get into. And uh, if they're sort of in that proselytizing kind of mode, they want you to be into it as well. Like uh, I've had people, you know, wanted me to listen to self-help tapes and check out uh, certain diets and all the kinds of things like, you know, they really want you to. And again, they're just trying to sort of be helpful and, and have you be into what they're into. But if your job sort of depends on you eating a certain food or not, it's kind of, it feels invasive, you know, it feels invasive. And, and uh, she was, uh, they, they embodied that very accurately in sort of having the astrological charts being done for the band, you know. <laughs> um, something that, maybe among musicians gets quoted a lot but maybe isn't the most quoted in here is of course the, the jazz odyssey yes <laughs> um I, I, how often does that come up in uh, uh among musicians that seems often. like okay it's time okay i was just thinking in the often. in the practice room it's got to be like okay it's jazz odyssey time <laughs> often and if you know if you know you know from being a cellist there's only there's only 12 keys available and d minor is one of the common ones that comes up a lot so anytime a song is in D minor, we all go, oh, the saddest of all keys, D minor. I thought it was A minor, to be honest, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm saying, if we're quoting the documentary, it was Oh, no, D no, minor of course. M. Yeah, no, yeah, that was my note there, right? I was like, right, right. A minor? Because, <laughs> I mean, that is it's the like, thing. I mean, you know, the classical composers were very much like, it's in this key for this reason, so. Absolutely, and, you, you know. He was no exception. And then he was saying, you know, that's beautiful. What's it called? Uh, lick my love pump. You know? <laughs> I, I was, um, I, I just got a bunch of lyrics from a guy. So I've been working like folk rock and I got one song, ah, the key's not wrong. And I, I, I bumped it up a bit, you know, threw a capo on the guitar and then realized, oh, I can't sing this anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I bumped right. it out of my own range. Oops. <laughs> so that was, well, that's the thing, especially in, in vocal music, you know, you, you have to, you have to, have the key be something that the singer can actually execute and that's that's different band to band even if you're doing cover material you know you can't always sing everything in the original key even if it is the saddest of all keys you know yes <laughs> i do have some i have some uh gamers listening among my audience here so mm -hmm. um we, we already mentioned the tour bus a little bit but uh right what's what's the fantastic uh 
tour bus video game any of those or is it just nap time <laughs> you know yeah i i'm so not a gamer and i say that i'm so not a gamer and yet i will sit and play solitaire on my desktop for hours and hours but i'm not a gamer i don't you know i play games but i'm not a gamer so like i'm not up on the latest games but there are definitely people who are actually what i've seen more on our tours is like there's a drummer friend of mine who's who's very good at sort of like the way he keeps happy is by going away from the group whenever he can like we're just sitting around you know and there's group dynamic going on he's off in the corner and he's looking at his phone and he's watching uh family guy that's sort of his like you know i see people watching a lot of uh private screens you know that kind of thing more than i see gaming these days on on the tour bus um in this movie we see sort of what now looks we already mentioned a little bit about airport security but sort of the the wild west of you know uh moving around it's like, like just things are so different now especially in the past year um so you just played a few gigs in italy was it yeah yeah sure how, how was getting there and back uh there's a couple more hoops to jump through than there used to be i tell you uh you know italy did not have a good time in the pandemic they're still not having a great time so it's the cdc considers it a uh, an at-risk country uh, so going over there you have to uh, have your CDC vaccination card with you in a, a hard copy. You can't show them a picture of you. Actually, I have, have to show it. You have to register with the European Union. They have a thing called the passenger locator form, uh, which you have to do online beforehand. And it gives you a QR code. And you have to show the QR code before you can get into the airport in America to even go like, check in for the flight. So there's like two pieces of paper you had to go to get over there. Since once we were over there, first thing we did was we got COVID tests on the ground there because we were only on the ground for like 48 hours, a little more. And you had to have a, co a negative COVID test in w less than 48 hours, whether you're vaccinated or not, to get back into America. So in other words, to get into the airport in Rome to come home, I had to show them a, a negative COVID test. And there's an, also a, a similar sort of database that you have to register with in the United States. Uh, which is a um, um, contact tracing sort of database. So since I've been home, you know, that was two pieces of paper that you had to show before even getting to the airport in Rome. And since I've been home, I've been getting texts and robocalls from the state of New York, you know, saying, because you travel to an at-risk country, we recommend that you uh, get a, a test three to five days after you return, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a bunch more hoops to jump through now with, the the pandemic concerns um and the only way i can relate that back to spinal tap is by saying i don't know if you've noticed this because it, it's more explained when you see the dvd bonus footage but the uh the traveling cold sore oh yes 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 <laughs> it, it like slowly makes its way around the entire band right like you, you kind of notice like oh derek's got it today oh nigel's got it tomorrow and then the, on the uh I think there's a hot tub scene in the bonus footage that it got cut out of the main film and they all have it like they're all they all have the same the same herpes you know <laughs> right yeah i know in japan uh they're happy well they're having the paralympics now and they just had yeah. the olympics so it was just like kind right. of um how they're kind of keeping all the athletes and everyone trying to keep them as much in a sort of bubble as possible sure so it's uh, hard though man it's really hard to keep everybody to, isolated like that in quarantine it's not easy I've been relatively lucky of it because I'm up here in the mountains where uh, right. other than wearing masks, there hasn't been much going on. So that's kind of nice. I I never, never stopped working my job for better or for worse. So right. Well, as you know, downstairs teleworking, though, but <laughs> right. Well, as you know, in Japan, wearing masks is no big deal. That's always been part of the culture. So like, you know, you're wearing a mask a little bit more now, but that's it was always completely acceptable in fact considered polite i think if you have a cold you know over there you're supposed to be wearing a mask for yeah the protection you're, of others, coughing, right? you're supposed to a few years because this is pre-covid i had a student where she'd come in every week wearing a mask i'm like after it's like two years later i'm like i don't actually know what this girl looks like uh, <laughs> so i've only so, seen her from the eyes up right yeah yeah and and uh since 
you know, the past year, occasionally there's like, we want to take a picture. So, okay, mask down for the picture. And um, right. it's been a few students where I pull down their mask. I'm like, whoa, you do not look like I thought you did. <laughs> or I yeah, haven't you see, get... actually seen them for a year and a half. So I'm like, yeah. whoa, surprising. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, because you, your your mind sort of fills in the rest of the features when you think about it, well, they probably have a nose that looks like that and a jaw that looks like that, and you can be very very wrong. Turns out, I will um, give a shout out. I, I here in Nagano, I don't live far from Matsumoto, which has um, uh, the Fuji Gaki or something factory, uh, which okay. makes. I mean, they make. It's funny they they'll make branded guitars for music stores. Um, mm -hmm. And then they'll make Japanese fenders on the same line. They're like the same thing. Right. Sure, so, sure, sure. But the big plus is Japan doesn't always like use stuff. You know, a good American guitar will go used will go for top dollar. But um, yeah, you go around here and you just keep running into these Japanese guitars that they're practically like giving away. Wow, wow! So, I might uh, have to come. I might have to come shopping because I have a, I have a Japanese Fender jazz bass, the Getty Lee model, and it is tremendous. It's one of the finest instruments I own. I think the manufacturing standards over there are are just off the charts great. So I'm yeah. I'm shocked to hear that the resale value isn't isn't that good. Here, I'll blow your mind. I, I put these uh, within arm's reach. I got this two months ago. It says it's yeah. a jazz bass special, but it's got a P yeah. bass body and a P bass pickup, and then the there jazz, you go. So. Okay, so and this one actually says Fender, right? It's got yep. weird tuners, but. Yep. it was two it was 200 bucks amazing amazing <laughs> it's, it's, it, i looked at uh, i think it is base one and then this other one was even cheaper this was 100 bucks and mm -hmm. it's made of outer it's not anything cheap right. you, you see you see what that's a copy wow. of yeah 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 it's, 100 it's bucks it says history base yeah it says history right that's the Japanese history band, okay. but they but they made the japanese vendors like right on the same line so yeah. it was like yeah, yeah wild so yeah especially for bases just um recently i've been like holy crap uh, going to these used music stores <laughs> wow all right that's that's a good pro tip next time i come over there i'm not going to bring one with me so i might come home with one a couple oh, of new God, ones yeah if you go if you go into um shibuya yeah yeah, yeah. Hold it, you will definitely. Now, I'm not quite sure they have this weird, like nonchalant hatred of Japanese gear, but <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I, I did some research that that Jacko copy I looked up. It was made in 1998. At which point, it sold for two thousand dollars, and I bought it for a hundred bucks. Right. I'm like, that's wow. crazy. They wow. should research their stuff a little more, but. <laughs> Well, but, but as you say, it's got a different brand name on it, so they're you know the cachet is gone to to the collector, quote unquote. And then a few months later, in Tokyo, I did play a Fender copy with the, mm -hmm. and the, didn't like it. So, <laughs> right? They're not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not all winners. Uh, their their quality control has gotten very very good lately. But sometimes it depends on the tree that it came from. You know, if the neck just doesn't resonate because the tree wasn't set that swinging. There's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter how, you know, computer guided the the lathe was that it was cut on, you know. Uh, you know, and um, again, looping back to the Spinal Tap guys, they were using like, you know, BC Rich kind of stuff, uh, you know, with some kind of fairly inexpensively made uh, instruments, but they had a sound, you know, they, you know <laughs> especially when you turned them up to 11, they really, you know, they made a noise that was, it was more about the, the physical stylings of them. Like they kind of looked mm. pointy and awkward and weird looking, you know, so that's why I turned a lot of people off of them. But some are great guitars. Yeah, my first bass was a BC Rich, but to be honest, I don't miss it. <laughs> yeah, 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 fair enough. They're not all winners, not all of them. No, and um, and, and I'm sure I, w I didn't have it like set up properly or anything. I was playing in like a punk band, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So just show up and bash the thing out. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I think the action figures. I believe Derek is holding a BC Ridge, like a Mockingbird bass, and uh, Nigel has a Flying V, a Gibson, and I think Derek has a uh, a Les Paul. So kind of across the board, sort of thing. You know, some some American made, some some Asian build stuff, and uh, but yeah, '80s '80s for sure. Big yeah, big hair. Gotta try playing a flying V someday and see. I don't. I don't see how that works. Oh, something I. I, I, I totally agree with the sandwiches. By the way. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. I mean, it's, they make him look like he's being bitchy, but I'm like, yes, that is <laughs> annoying. What would you do with that? 
It's very common. You like you, they throw you a, a tray of anything backstage. You're like, all right, does this the the bread? But the bread is too small, and the meat is too like. What do you? How do you do it? You know, you have to just sort of not be picky and uh, <laughs> make do with whatever they throw at you. You know, how often do they throw something fantastic your way? Oh, it depends. It really is kind of all over the board. Like uh, I played um, Monday night at the Minnesota State Fair. And they had a big catering building. So there was like chicken and salmon and salad and vegetables and dessert. It was beautiful, really nice. Just as much warm food as you can eat. And you went up on the stage just feeling like satisfied and ready to perform. Uh, and then in equal measures, you'll get, you know, a bandwich, uh, you know, cold ham on white bread or nothing. That happens a lot too. Like we were, I was playing a wedding gig uh, a couple of weeks ago and and it was on our contract. They were supposed to feed us at six o'clock for a 7 p.m. downbeat. At 6.30, the caterer had like screwed up. So they were trying to order us a pizza at 6.30. I'm like, that's not going to make it here on time. Like, we're not going to, we're not going to be fed before we eat. And they said, oh, well, you'll eat on your break, which was P.S. going to be like another two hours later. So they kind of gave us like a, a, a plate of, comically enough, of these little mini miniature uh, hamburger hors d'oeuvres. And like, here, have some of this. And we're like, oh, great. We're full now. Thank you very much. You know, it, it runs the gamut. Like sometimes you get really treated well and other times you get zero, literally zero. How, how are the uh, Japanese gigs for that? Well, the most places that we played most often is, is the Blue Note. And it, they've just been, they have their own chefs, like just, they come take your order. They say, anybody have any food allergies or any dietary restrictions? And they just lay out this gigantic spread for you between shows. Uh, there's like an early show and then a break and a late show. And they just put out this huge dinner, like, you know, fried, uh, uh, um, uh, marinated tofu if you're a vegetarian like I am, or, you know, bowls of pasta and salads. And it's great, like really nice. They've always treated us extremely well. Yeah, I was, I was think, thinking the Japanese gigs must give give you some good food. Have you run into a problem with the vegetarians? Though I've had people uh, know people that have come to Japan to be vegetarians. They're like, I'd like the vegetarian thing, and they'll bring them like like a salad with a bunch of bacon bits on top. <laughs> <laughs> I've run into that a little bit because also you know in Japan fish is a vegetable because you know there's there's bonito on everything, every every everything. So sometimes it's hard to to avoid that, but. At the Blue Note, because they have traveling uh, artists, especially a lot of uh, a lot of Western artists, a lot of American artists come over. They they're very hip to and and conscious about people's dietary restrictions. So over there, they understand they know what a vegetarian is. They have no problem with it, and they were always like they always we always went on stage with full bellies over there. Yeah, again, that's that's Tokyo or Nagoya with you know yeah. they where they have people coming through all the time, so they know. But uh, right, I, probably like the family restaurant, they go in and get that and get the the salad with the bacon bits yeah i've only done the i've only done the family restaurant with with local friends who have been able to sort of guide me through it you know because i have i think on my own i would be lost you know (laughs) and then the only other places where we played outside of tokyo were up in sapporo at the join alive festival and the fuji rock festival so these big festivals tend to have pretty banging catering backstage for the traveling musicians they're they're very sympathetic to us you know for playing uh I mean, obviously, here's a, I guess for playing, you want the big gig, of course. That's, that's exciting. That's cool. Um, for watching gigs, would you prefer a big gig or a small gig? It depends, you know, because certain shows make sense in an arena. Like, I remember sort of going back, <clears throat> going back to the 80s. I saw Journey in an in a in a hockey arena and it was the first time i got journey like i got free tickets to the show i wasn't a huge fan uh but when i saw them in the hockey arena and you realize like every snare beat the the length of the reverb on their records is about the length of the reverb to the back of the hockey arena and and back so like that music is tuned for that room so it makes sense when you see them in an arena like oh that's why they call it arena rock you're like oh i I get it now, you know, whereas if you saw them at, you know, at, at the Blue Note in Tokyo, it'd be like, I don't get these guys. Like, why are they taking so long between notes? You know, because they got the reverb to deal with, you know, they know how to tune the room. But I think generally a, a small theater is probably the most, the, the best intersection of crowd size and energy with 
intimacy of being able to see the band up close. That's probably my most favorite way. Yeah, I went to school in uh, Athens, Georgia. So, of course, we have several clubs and, and I worked yeah. for the radio station there DJing. So, you know, I just if there was a show I wanted to see, I could always just put my name you, on the list and go check UOG, it out. UOG, man. <laughs> UOG. Yes, that's right. <laughs> All right. So started off with my nice graveyard shift and worked up to doing the, uh, you know, garage rock and psychedelic rock shows. <laughs> yeah, I was the music director at WTUL in New Orleans, Tulane University Station. And that's where I was working when Spinal Tap came out. So like we actually played the, the, the soundtrack album on, on the air. So yeah, college radio, man. It's great. It's a great place to come up. Yeah, I always, I always regretted that I didn't do radio anymore. But hey, I guess podcasting is radio in a way. I got to talk more, though. You know, can't just yeah. like zone out while the record's playing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is radio. It really is. It's the same thing we used to do. Um, are there any other big beats you want to put out on this particular movie, this documentary? <laughs> uh, let me think about if there's anything specific. I mean, you know, it's so joyous to me to see it now because i mean i saw in one of your show notes you were talking about all the cameos in it you know billy crystal shows up in it uh dana carvey's in that scene too i don't know if you know that i he's, did uh, this he, time i was like what is that yeah and then i saw in the oh that is him uh yeah, yeah he's Br playing one of the mimes you know we got bruno kirby as the taxi driver he gets to bruno talk kirby. a little bit <laughs> Yeah, yeah, on the bonus footage, the, Bruno's whole storyline gets really explored, and like uh, they cut a lot of his storyline from the main from the main movie. But um, he's great in it. Uh, so Fran Drescher, like all these people, like you see all these character actors um, creating, and and you know, and even Rob Reiner is Marty DeBerge. You know, he, it's just it's a genius character. To me, the the way that he sets up the narration at the beginning of the movie and he, and he was like, you know, and, and I got more than that. And he's, he just, he's so uncomfortable on camera. He like goes to cross his arm and like forgets what he's doing and puts him down back, back by his side. It's such a subtle piece of, of blatant acting that sets the tone for the whole thing. Um, and you know, he's playing the part of a documentary filmmaker. Uh, and then it just, it, it, it brilliantly sets up the, the entire, absurdity along with the the conceit that it's going to be you know uh quote unquote a documentary where we're following these musicians around and experiencing everything they experience on on tour in america you know oh and there's one thing i wanted to bring up and i'm, I'm hoping this might lead to a good real life story is um mm. so uh, the the onstage technical gaffes uh for <laughs> nigel you know shredding too hard and falling on his back and having to have the crew <laughs> push him back up but he doesn't screw up the solo that's right he stays committed he knows what his job is to keep shredding uh um, i've seen that happen yeah i've seen that happen i've seen the the whole shenanigans he has with his wireless that happened to me just the other day i was that was last saturday night as a matter of fact i had a wireless unit and i was conducting this band we're doing a wedding gig in brooklyn and when i got on the other side of the drummer suddenly the bass just cuts off like the wireless just it was, there was no taxi interference from outside the building <laughs> but you know like the wireless starts to malfunction i'm like how long have we been doing this this film came out in 1984 it's 2021 has this technology not gotten any better in the interim, you know, 40 effing years that we're still having problem with the wireless, you know? So I've seen that. I've seen technical stuff like when uh, um, uh, Derek gets caught in the pod, you know, that's supposed to open up. He can't get out of the pod. Uh, <laughs> now he does stop playing, but he also gets his arm caught in it. So <laughs> he does. He does. But I've seen set pieces like that malfunction. I've seen technical cues go wrong. I've seen these big grandiose pyrotechnic things go wrong you know like uh just things misfire or sputter out or uh, uh all the time these things happen all the time it's shockingly how common these things are and then you have to do like what he does when he gets his arm caught in the in the pod when it closes back up again he just kind of goes like ta-da like he holds his other arm like yeah that's i meant to do that you know and that's what you have to do like you have to sort of like play it off like yep i meant to do that that's exactly what i planned I thought he was just so happy to get out of it. But uh, you know, when, I, when I did play a lot of gigs and the embarrassing thing is it took me like two years to figure this out. There's always something wrong with my amp. You know, I'm like, is one of the tubes too old? And it was this weird clicking sound, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm left handed. 
So okay. I wear I I don't wear a watch anymore, but I wear a watch in my right hand. Yeah, like analog watch. Oh, oh it was it was, it was bass. it was just picking up the um actually uh, the guitar in this case, but yeah, the pickup yeah, yeah. for uh, just picking up that watch yeah. like always. Yeah. <laughs> there's a story, uh, you know, the recording. We are the world. We are the people. You know, the children. There's so this is all star recording session where they have every giant star of the 1980s is in this session and one of the mics is picking up like and they're checking the cables and they're replacing the mic and there's all these clicking and they can't they can't find it what the heck is going on and they realize finally and it took them an embarrassingly long amount of time to figure this out cindy lopper's jewelry was rattling and the mic was picking it up like it was a physical it was recording exactly what was in the room which was click 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 it was her earrings like knocking into her necklace or something like okay because it was also on camera they were filming it as well so she's in full gear you know but the gear made noise <laughs> for, for a recording session you know it's like yeah these are real world problems i'm telling you man gotta watch out for your accessories yeah or at least That's think right. about them a little bit so yeah <laughs> the, there's the a story reason. i i'm sorry go ahead i was gonna say the other reason i stopped wearing a watch is just because uh playing music all the time like my hands started hurting all the time like oh cutting off the circulation so right, i gave right. up on watches completely yeah but uh sorry go ahead well there's, there's a story that i i do tell in my book and it, it's sort of like the chapter is called what's your worst nightmare like what's like what's the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you on stage and for me although i didn't feel that tremendously embarrassed about it but it could have certainly been construed that way and i think a lot of people would have been mortified but I was playing, uh, I think it was my first performance playing at uh, subbing on Hedwig and the Angry Inch on Broadway. And the costume I was wearing, they kind of basically dressed me up to look like Joey Ramone. I had a leather jacket on and they had all these badges on it and um, aviator sunglasses and a striped t-shirt and skinny jeans and the whole thing. Um, so the show's all, you know, the band's all on stage. We're in costume, we're in makeup, we have lines, we have, we have vocal parts, we sing, uh, everything's memorized. At the end of the show, what I, my instructions are, take the bass off, put it on the stand, walk up to the front of the stage with the cast, take a bow. That's my instruction, right? We get to the end of the show. Toward the end of the show, there's a scene which is kind of like a mosh pit scene. And it's very highly choreographed. Like uh, there's a piece of tape on the floor that I'm going to go sit on, put my heel on that piece of tape and turn my back to the Yitzhak character who's going to come running and slam into me full, full blast. Um, played by uh, the great actress Lena Hall. And I think... Lena probably weighs 90 pounds soaking wet, you know, so she ran, runs into me full speed. I'm just like, okay, that's it. No problem. You know, but, but it's choreographed. So she doesn't hit the bass. So she doesn't injure herself and she also doesn't disturb the music. Right. So somewhere in this melee, I'm wearing, I'm wearing this necklace that I'm wearing right now. It's a, a silver ball chain with a, a little pendant on it. This necklace gets wrapped around a, a badge, a button that's on the leather jacket lapel. So when I go to take the base off, the base is now locked to my body. I cannot get the base off of my body. And, and I need to go up to the front of the stage. The show's over. The, the audience is like looking at us and they're waiting for me to walk up there. So as I'm trying to like unhook the strap button and I'm pulling it down, it's creating a, a, a tighter knot. I've got long hair. So it was like the, the hair was getting knotted up with my in-ear monitors with the necklace, with the strap. And the more I was pulling on it, the tighter it was getting, like there was no way I was getting off the stage. And the, the base is hardwired, it wasn't, there was no wireless. So it, I'm tethered to the rig, I cannot get off stage. <laughs> and I'm just being, like you know, a thousand people are looking at me like, what are, you, what are we doing? Like, what's going on? And finally, the music director said, just bring the bass with you. I'm like, oh, oh, I can do that. So I walked up with the bass and he took mercy on my soul and he reached over, he had, the wherewithal to do this. I didn't. I was just stuck. And he physically unplugged the bass and just threw the cords. So at least now I could like take the bow and walk off stage in my shame to try to <laughs> try to disentangle myself in front of a thousand of my closest friends. And it probably took, you know, 10, 15 seconds, but it felt like about an hour up there with the whole audience just looking at you like, what are you, what are you doing, man? What's what's going on? It's so this time this, works like that. Yeah. <laughs> So this necklace that I'm wearing right now, I did not wear that again for any of the rest of the run of, of Hedwig. I'm like, nope, lesson learned. <laughs> Don't do it. 
um i guess we should be wrapping up a little bit here but uh, i know i read your book it's a it's a good one so please tell people where they can do that i know you have an album or two with your name so on it that people it. could get into <laughs> well i got all let, kinds of stuff yeah, yeah what, no, what, what what are you excited about these days <laughs> I'm excited about all of it. The book really just came out this year. So anybody wants to check out any of my stuff, it's at uh, www.funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. Links to all the social media, all the YouTube stuff, Amazon, the books on Amazon, the links to Amazon where you can get the book, all that stuff. Uh, I've got a new record deal with Color Red Music, uh, which has uh, a division out of uh, Denver, Colorado, and they have a division in Japan too. So I'm signed to Color Red Japan. So um because i've been producing music all during the, the lockdown i've been doing recordings using file sharing over the internet with with all my similarly unemployed compatriots you know so i have like two albums worth of material in the can a whole catalog of material uh and then starting over here in june all the private party work came back so the concerts are coming back slowly and the broadway stuff's going to start coming back in the fall so i'm as busy now as i was playing before before the whole pandemic thing so i'm just excited and very happy to be back at work and uh i'm happy that people are reading the book and saying nice things about it like you just did i, I really appreciate that it's been it's been very rewarding having that out there yeah it, it, i i basically do am a, a bedroom recorder these days but yeah there is something to getting out in front of some people um before the pandemic i had started playing with the local orchestra again Got right. one concert out and then boop, goodbye. Oh, yeah. Hasn't come back yet, though. The I still got the nice cello downstairs to play, so no one's come for that yet. Uh, right. Was a <laughs> technically a loner, although the guy that loaned it to me started like asking me like, like tech questions about. I'm like, I thought you loaned this to me. Maybe he uh -huh. forgot that it's his. But <laughs> okay, well, that's cool too. Anyway, see how long it play. stays at your house. Then that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, as for this podcast, it's oral hygiene. It could be found at Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I'll respond there. If you're listening to it, you already know where to get the podcast. Um, since we're talking music today, I, I crank out music here in the mountains of Japan and stick it up at www.rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. Actually, there is no www at the beginning of that, but uh, type in those words, you'll find it. So. <laughs> Uh, Ivan's been very groovy hearing some road stories. I, I always love to hear some some good road stories, things along those lines. <laughs> right on. Well, I appreciate you having me, man. It's a, it's a great format. It's a lot of fun. And again, anytime you want to talk about my favorite film of all time, which I live from day to day, this is Spinal Tap. I'm always I'm game for that. I like I said, I quote it every day of my life. It's a real thing to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me some money. Go to work every day. That that pops <laughs> in your mind, right? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Rock on. Did you advance the film strip? Are you on the final page? Well done. <laughs>